All right, so tonight I want to talk about, I'm entitled this message, Simple and Safe. Simple and Safe. And I have, actually I have two anchor passages tonight, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, but first, we start with 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It says, Brothers, when I came to you, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and a fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power, so that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Our second anchor passage is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 to 14. It says, In him you also... After hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and after believing in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So in 2006, Chad and Eleanor Lawrence founded the company offering a do-it-yourself solution for home security. After struggling in college to find a suitable security company for renters, Chad and Eleanor took matters into their own hands and developed a wireless, portable security system that could be carried with them wherever they went. You come to find out, Chad and Eleanor were certainly not the only ones who were interested in this type of product. In the first four years, they were making $1.4 million a year. After uh, 2013, they were making $38.5 million a year. And as of December 6th, 2021, annual, annual revenue for Chad and Eleanor's homegrown company was $500 million. $500 million. This company was built on two basic principles, simplicity and safety. Consumers were willing to pay $500 million a year for something that simply gave them a sense of security and safety. Today, I would like to propose something to you that is so simple a child can understand it and offers unmatched security beyond anything else you may encounter, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I normally have one anchor passage, but today I felt two passages were more appropriate. And also, Brother Rich teaches that we have one point in a sermon. A sermon without a point is pointless. So learn that very well. While there are two facets of the subject matter today, I assure you there is only one point, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ is superior, period. But I would like to take some time tonight and consider a couple of my favorite characteristics of the gospel. And the first one is its simplicity. I want to start this evening talking about the simplicity of the gospel. So many of you are familiar with my testimony and without going too deep in it, uh, into it tonight, again, uh, let's just say I, I was a victim of the overcomplication of the gospel which ultimately led to some outright false teaching. And this personal experience is why I am so passionate about this particular characteristic of the gospel. But to help us understand 
the simplicity of the gospel, I want to examine a very familiar passage in the Bible. We're going to look at Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, we'll start with verse 32. It says, Two different men who were criminals also were led with him to be killed. When they came to the place which is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they divided his clothes by casting lots. The people stood by watching, but the rulers with them scoffed, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen one of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, seeing you are under the same sentence? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing amiss. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now if you ask 100 different people how to be saved, you may very well get 100 different, slightly different answers. Uh, Many involve some sort of work or good deed or some sort of action on our part to earn salvation. And even those who do not subscribe uh, to a works-based means of salvation, often they get the notion that there's a particular formula that uh, makes salvation either work or not work. Uh, Some say there's a certain prayer you must pray. There's certain words you must use. Uh, Some say your heart has to be just in the right place. You have to have just the right amount of faith. You have to approach Jesus with absolutely no doubt, no questions, no insecurities. Then and only then can you be saved. Well, let's examine this conversation between Jesus and a common criminal a little bit closer. First, it seems that both criminals hanging next to Jesus ridiculed him at one point. If we look at Mark chapter 15, 31 and 32, it says, Likewise, the chief priest mocked him among themselves with the scribes and said, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So both thieves were acting in typical criminal fashion. However, at some point... Something changed for one of those criminals. We look back to Luke chapter 23, verse 39, and we see that the first criminal continued to mock Jesus, uh, just as everyone else was mocking, asking him to take himself down along with the criminal. But here is where we see the shift in the second criminal. He then begins to rebuke the first criminal for his words towards Jesus. Here is where I want us to pay particular attention to the words used by this thief and the the eternal implications. Now first he says, Do you not fear God, seeing as you are under the same sentence? Seeing as you are under the same sentence. He is acknowledging Jesus as God here. He's saying, look, we're under the same sentence as God himself. 
Next he says, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing amiss. Here he is admitting that he himself is a sinner. He is saying, look, we deserve our punishments. Uh, it makes sense for us to be here, but Jesus, he's not supposed to be here. He did nothing wrong. This thief understood what Paul wrote several years later in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin was death. Here's the part that I find particularly interesting and simply cannot reconcile with those that believe our hearts have to be at a certain level of theological understanding before we can be saved. The thief says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Let me ask you this. If I ask someone to remember me, do I anticipate being wherever they're going to go? No. I would probably say, hey, I'll see you when I get there. It appears the thief had no anticipation of going to heaven, and I would even say he probably didn't feel worthy at that point. But here is what he made clear in this statement. He acknowledged Jesus as Lord, boss, master. He acknowledged that he had a kingdom that transcended this world. Then comes Jesus' response, and this is my favorite part of this conversation. Jesus says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a passage we're very familiar with, verse 6 through 8, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Instead, I say that we are confident and willing to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord, straight from Jesus' mouth to the thief's ears, he would be with him that very day. So let's quickly contrast the first thief and what he said. He says, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Now there's no admission of guilt in that statement. There's no acknowledgement that he was receiving the wages of sin. No acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord or no recognition of this kingdom of God. He openly mocked and subsequently rejected Christ. And previously in Christ's ministry, Jesus had made it very clear in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Do you think that criminal was in paradise with Jesus that day? I don't think he was. So where does that leave us? Why did God see fit to include this conversation in his word? How does this conversation that took place over 2,000 years ago have any relation to 2021 Cabot, Arkansas? I want you to listen real close and understand that one of these two thieves, one of these two criminals is you. One of these two criminals is me. Okay, but they were thieves. They were criminals, right? Obviously guilty of doing something that merited the death penalty. I'm not that bad. Nothing I have done would put me on the cross. Well, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And James 2.10 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point 
is guilty of breaking the whole law. So you see, at one point, we all were those reviling thieves, mocking Jesus for who he was, for what he had done, if not by word, certainly by action. But then we reach a point where we must decide, which thief will we be? Will we be the thief looking only for selfish gain, never acknowledging his sin, or the Savior looking him straight in the face? Or would we be the humbled thief, knowing he was getting exactly what he deserved, knowing Jesus was paying the price for something he didn't do, and acknowledging a king and his kingdom? Romans 10, 8 says, But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. This is the word of faith that we preach, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised, has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be ashamed. The gospel is simple. We try to overcomplicate it. Did the thief on the cross say a fancy prayer? Did he even say a prayer at all, arguably? Did he get his act straight before he approached Jesus? Did he make up for all the wrong that he had done before he came before his creator? No. He confessed with his mouth that Jesus was Lord believed in his heart that Jesus was who he said he was and would do what he said he would do, i.e. be raised from the dead, i.e. enter into his kingdom. Isn't the simplicity of the gospel beautiful? For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The next characteristic of the gospel I want to talk about tonight is the security of the gospel, the security of the gospel. Now, when I was a kid, uh, we met at my grandparents' house every Friday for supper. Uh, all of my extended family, cousins, second cousins, just every wild bunch of family member you could think of, we were all in this small two-bedroom, one-bath house just piled in on top of each other. Um, preparing food, you know, for mixing macaroni, whatever we're doing. We're all working together to get this supper ready uh, to consume. And then there comes a point where my grandfather would get up from his chair in the living room, come into the kitchen or the dining room area, and he would sit down at the head of the table. This was the time when our family knew the work was done. Right, it was time to eat. To understand the security of the gospel, we must first grasp the finality of Christ's work on the cross. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This act of sitting down meant something. Just like my family knew the work was done when my grandfather father sat down at the head of the table, all creation knew that the real work 
had been done, completed, finished, when Christ sat down at the right hand of the Father. Now let's back up a bit to understand how that applies to us particular. So I want to consider two questions. And these questions are asked often to me by students and even sometimes adults. First, can I lose my salvation? You know, once I'm saved, once I've truly put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, can I do something to mess that up? The second question is, what can I do to earn or at least contribute to my salvation? The answers to these questions will help us better understand the security of the gospel. So first question, can I lose my salvation? The answer is no. The reason is because of justification. And we're going to talk about that word. What is justification? Simply put, justification is to be declared not guilty. More specifically, declared righteous or blameless in the sight of God. So why do we need to be justified? After all, we're all basically good moral people, right? If we're sitting in this building, we're probably not some of those, you know, marginal fringe of society kind of people, Right? We're basically good, at least by comparison to everyone else. So why would we need justification? Because we are not basically good. We are basically evil, sinful, twisted human beings because we've been marred by sin. We just think we're good because we have the wrong measurement that we're using. Right? I can always find someone to make me feel better about myself. Right? Romans 8, 6 through 8 says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I can always find someone worse off than I am, who's bad, more bad, badder, whatever you said, than I am. For that matter, I can always find somebody better than me as, as well. But if I want to see how I truly measure up, then I need to stand next to Jesus. That will make you feel small pretty quick. All these good things we do, all these nice things we have, they amount to nothing Next to Jesus, Romans 3, starting with verse 10, says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Again, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When our measuring stick is Jesus, we simply don't, stack up, we quickly realize we are in need of justification. So what are the requirements of justification? The requirement for justification is blood. Is blood. Leviticus 17, 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. You know, in the beginning, when Adam took that first bites and he entertained that notion, you know, I might be able to measure up to God. Our relationship with our creator was severed. 
Blood atonement was the only solution to right that wrong. So God set forth some laws and ordinances to help people understand just how that worked. Leviticus 16.34 said, And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in a year because of all your sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. God's people were commanded to make animal sacrifices to atone for their sins. There was just one problem with these sacrifices. They were never enough. They were never enough. They were performed year after year after year. If we look at Hebrews 10 verse 1, it says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers have once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. And as the priests made these sacrifices, full notice, they were not allowed to sit down. Hebrews 10, 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which, never, which can never take away sins. The work was never finished. The sacrifices were never enough. They were just a picture of what was to come. So this being the case, what sacrifice would be or could ever be enough? In stepped Jesus. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He was fully God, fully man. He came down to earth as the perfect spotless Lamb of God, the only true acceptable sacrifice. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Our faith and our hope are in God through Jesus, who paid that ultimate price. He gave his life to pay for our sins, and that's not even the best news. If he just died for us and that was it, the story would still have a grim ending. But he not only suffered a grueling death that he did not deserve on our behalf, but he conquered death. On the third day he arose, the victor, he ascended to heaven, his rightful home, and sat down. Back to Hebrews 10 but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The work was finished. Our sin debt was paid in full. But what can I do? What can I do to earn by or at least contribute to my salvation to this grace. We're programmed to think that we have to pitch in, right? We have to, it has to be within our control, within our power. We have to do something to earn this, right? 
Well, the answer is nothing. There is nothing that you can do to contribute to this equation. We cannot purchase our salvation by our works or by any other means. As we already read in 1 Peter 1, our currency isn't any good. The only currency that's good is the blood of Christ. The only acceptable payment is His precious blood. Read Romans 3, 27 and 28. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it, exclu- it is excluded. But what kind of law? But a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And if I can't gain my salvation by works, what sense would it make that I could lose my salvation by works? But what about Galatians 5.4? I'm glad you asked. Galatians 5.4 says, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempted to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. What about that? Well, the word that's used here for fallen means to be driven out of one's course or to be inefficient. We need only to look at the beginning of this verse and apply just a smidge of context to know that Paul is not talking about losing our salvation. He's saying if your course of action is to save yourselves by following the law, that path is not going to get you there. Your attempts of self-justification are tragically inefficient. The only way you can attain grace and not fall away from it or not quite make it to it is through Jesus Christ. The only thing we can do is to believe on the one that paid that price. Once we do, it's a done deal. Our ransom is paid. The debt we owe is wiped clean. 1 John 2.2 says he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The teens know that that is my favorite word in the Bible, propitiation. Christ is our propitiation. I love this word. Propitiation basically means, simply means the substitute assuming the obligations of the guilty. Jesus stepped in and didn't try to negotiate our debt for a you know, shorter term or a smaller amount. He stepped in and assumed the debt we owed. He took it upon himself. The guilt became his and not ours. Our price was paid in full. He took it all. We are henceforth declared not guilty through the blood of Christ. And once we have accepted this substitute, then the Holy Spirit steps in and literally seals the deal. Back to our anchor text, or one of them, Ephesians 1, In him you also, after hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and after believing in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Many years ago, when my grandmother was still uh, living and working, she worked on up into her years, uh, she worked at Walmart. And uh, during Christmas, uh, and I don't even know if they still have this anymore, but during Christmas, there was a layaway program. 
And so my grandmother would, uh, would put all these gifts for us and lay away. And basically, you'd make a down payment, place that item on hold, and come back periodically and make payments. And uh, the intent was to have that balance paid off uh, by Christmas. And I think a lot of people sometimes look at Jesus kind of with that same pretense. They think God used his son kind of as a down payment for our sins, but we're left with kind of trying to make up the difference throughout our lives. So if we can just be good enough, contribute towards that balance, then hopefully it'll be paid off by the time it gets that time for you to go home. Hopefully, right? Well, let's be very clear here. If this were the case, I've got very bad news for you. No matter how much you work, no matter how much you save, what lengths you go through to scrape up this balance that you owe, it will never, ever be enough. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No matter how hard we try, we will never live up to God's standards. If God is running a layaway program, then we do not have a chance at all. But here's the good news. So God is not running away a layaway program. He has paid our debt in full using his son's blood as the currency. And no matter what our economic state is in, no matter what kind of condition, a market crash, any kind of catastrophic economy, economic event, that could never, ever diminish this currency. You want to invest in something truly secure? Invest in the blood of Jesus Christ. He paid the entire debt for all of mankind in one lump sum. You know, I was listening to a, a Christian poet and speaker a while back, and, and I liked the way he phrased this. He said, if, if you are asking the question, can I lose my salvation? then you're asking the wrong question. The real question is, can God lose my salvation? And the answer is unequivocally no. Romans 8, 38, 39, another one of my favorite passages, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. That sums it all up, right? Anything you can think of would fall into one of those categories. will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is something you can take to the bank. When our God saves, he saves all the way to the uttermost. But maybe you're asked, well, I'm already saved, okay? Why do we keep talking about the gospel? We've already established that we can't lose it. I don't need to be saved again, so why do we just keep talking about the gospel all the time? 1 John 5, 13, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of of the Son of God. We don't have to wonder if we're saved and hope and wish and well, one day when I get up there to those pearly gates, man, I hope, I, I hope I'm going to be able to get in there. That's not the kind of life that we have to live. We have security in the gospel. Now, our lives are complicated. 
And it seems like every year they get more complicated. And if there's nothing that we've learned over the last two years and the craziness that went on in our world is that our lives are anything but secure here on earth. And we all long for security and simplicity. Something that's simple and something that is sure that we can depend on. If you don't believe that, check out that $500 million bottom line of a company that offers the mere potential for physical security. It's just to protect your stuff. And consumers spend $500 million a year. If you want to know what our heart truly longs for, it's for eternal security. It's the joy that can't be explained, the peace that's incomprehensible. It's knowing that no matter what happens, it's going to be okay. Not just okay, but awesome, glorious, and amazing. We have Jesus. It's the simplicity and the security of the gospel.